Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. Reading today from the news, actually, about North Korea. We haven't done North Korea for quite a while here and wanted to get back. I've been collecting some stories, and uh, incredibly, there are some stories actually on some, um, as they're called, the drive-by media, you know, the media that aren't exactly uh, accurate a lot, but they they do occasionally talk about North Korea in a very sensitive way. And I wanted to share some of the stories I found there. Let's go to NBC News about Yanmi Park's long journey from North Korea to Chicago. Now, she's polite, she's petite and soft-spoken. Yanmi Park has emerged as an unlikely thorn in the side of North Korea's blustering leader, Kim Jong-un. Park fled North Korea at the age of 13, crossing the partly frozen Yalu River into China in 2007. She says she endured repeated sexual exploitation at the hands of a human trafficker and watched as her mother was sold off and forced to marry a Chinese farmer. Park later trekked across the Gobi Desert to seek refuge in Mongolia before reaching South Korea. Speaking out has earned her censure in her homeland. Pyongyang has called her a poisonous mushroom and a human rights propaganda puppet. Park takes these epithets as compliments. She's glad to have made Kim's regime feel threatened by her voice. She's now 24, living in Chicago with an American husband and a newborn son. Park told NBC News how propaganda infused every school lesson. Kim Jong-il, the father of North Korea's current leader, was regarded as a deity whose portrait hung in every home. I thought Kim Jong-il was a god who could read my mind, she said. I thought his spirit never dies, and I never thought he was a normal human being. Indoctrination made questioning one's circumstances practically unthinkable and voicing displeasure with the regime could put one's whole family in danger. I just never learned to think critically, she recalled. But uh, smuggled foreign DVDs like Titanic offered a glimpse of life outside of the repressive, poverty-stricken pariah state. At first, Park struggled to understand how a three-hour movie could be made about a love affair rather than glorifying a regime. Her state-run school taught fealty to the government and impressed a hard-line stance toward its enemies, America and Japan. Park was born in the northern city of Hyasan, near the border with China. Her father trafficked in Chinese-made goods on the black market, clothes, cigarettes, sugar, rice, later smuggled stolen metals into China. At one point, he was arrested and sent to a forced labor camp. Well, I lost, <clears throat> I lost my faith in humanity, she says. She describes a childhood of occasional comfort, but mostly deprivation. Extreme cold and hunger at times, spotty electricity. Days when the lights turned on were so infrequent that they were treated as holidays. Her dream was to have a, a landline in the house. In 2007, Park's older sister, Yunmi, who was 16 at the time, escaped to China with the help of a smuggler. Park and her mother made the crossing soon after, hoping to reunite there. 
But what followed was a harrowing, months-long journey through a network of human traffickers. Once across the border in China, Park says that one of the brokers tried to rape her, but her mother offered herself instead. Eventually, her mother was sold as a bride to a Chinese farmer in the countryside. Park described entering a business arrangement of sorts with her smuggler, who offered to reunite her with her parents if she became his Shifu, that's a mistress. Uh, the alternative was deportation to North Korea, likely followed by imprisonment or even execution. Paul submitted, uh, Park submitted to repeated rape and participated in the smuggling enterprise as a shepherd for other female North Korean defectors. Before her ordeal, Park assumed that only animals could be bought and sold. I lost my faith in humanity, she said. I mean, I could not trust men again. I hated men. I hated humanity. How on earth can people sell each other? Park's smuggler upheld his side of the bargain. He bought back her mother and smuggled her father into China. Her father died of colon cancer just weeks later. Eventually, Park and her mother met another North Korean woman who told them that South Korea grants refugee status to defectors. Aided by Christian missionaries operating an underground railroad, one night in March 2009, Park and her, her mother crossed the border between China and Mongolia in the near-freezing Gobi Desert, and from there they fled to South Korea. Nearly seven years after separating, Park was finally reunited with her sister in South Korea. And after years of trauma, her mother is on medication trying to get better. In 2014, she delivered a widely watched speech at a Young Leaders Summit in Dublin, Ireland. Park moved to America to write her memoir and enrolled in the Columbia University School of General Studies, which caters to non-traditional students focusing on human rights. She's taking a break from her studies after giving birth to a son just last week. Park also advised the Human Rights Foundation on Disrupt North Korea initiative. The group's Flash Drives for Freedom program sends USBs with Hollywood movies, K-pop, and South Korean soap operas into North Korea by balloon, so the Christians aren't the only ones doing that. The group sent 10,000 flash drives in 2016 and estimates that 1.1 million North Koreans have viewed the content. Park said she believes that the Trump administration's narrow focus on the North's nuclear program has deflected attention from the plight of millions of North Koreans. Outside information, like the smuggled DVDs that Park once watched, is needed to change people's minds and ignite grassroots resistance to the regime, she believes. North Koreans are thirsty for knowledge, she said. Park would like to humanize the image of the North Korean people in the foreign media. Too often they're represented as robots, she said, when really they have the same emotions and same dreams as everyone else. Park expects to be able to return to the land of her birth one day, Nothing is forever, and I believe that North Korea will change in my lifetime, she said. That's an article from Richard Engel, reporting from Seoul and Chicago, and Kenneth Werner, reporting from London. 
from uh, the NBC, we jump over to the New York Times, also not a purveyor of <laughs> politically correct, or actually correct, I should say, things. Uh, but here's, here's a story about North Korea that we have to accept, I believe. Mrs. Choi. Well, around 30,000 North Koreans have successfully defected to the South at this point. But under the reign of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, far fewer people are getting out. This is from the New York Times, March 18. Um, Mrs. Choi was worried about her sister in North Korea. The last time they spoke, two months earlier, her sister had sounded desperate. She said she had been imprisoned and beaten and could no longer bear the torment. She said she wanted to escape and join Miss Choi in South Korea. She said she would carry poison to kill herself if she were captured. For Miss Choi, 63, a grandmother with large brown eyes and a steely fortitude, getting the rest of her family to South Korea was the most important thing left in life. She had fled North Korea herself 10 years before. Her son had made it out too, as had her sister's daughter, who is now a hairdresser living near her in Seoul, which is the South's flashy capital, you all know. Miss Choi longed to be reunited with the sister, a 50-year-old dressmaker with her own home business, and also the nephew she had left behind. She wanted to get them to safety out of the reach of the government that had arrested her husband, her brother-in-law, her son-in-law, on suspicions of helping people leave. They had been targeted as enemies of the state and were never seen again. One evening this past summer, Miss Choi got the news she'd been waiting for. As she opened her apartment door, her niece, 25, shouted, My brother called. He said, We crossed the border. We're in China. Get the car. Miss Choi, who must go by only her last name to protect her and her family against possible retribution from the North Korean government, she was jubilant. But she and her niece felt a new anxiety. They knew well that the journey to South Korea was long and treacherous because you know, they had made it too. Defectors usually leave North Korea by crossing into China. The border is tightly guarded by soldiers under the command of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, who views those trying to leave as traitors. Once in China, defectors must rely on smugglers who charge extortionate rates to evade Chinese security and North Korean agents. Capture or betrayal could lead to prison or worse. They often make their way to China's southern border to, to seek passage to a third country, usually Thailand. From there, the South Korean government flies defectors to Seoul. Miss Choi's sister, a dressmaker, said she would take poison if she were caught escaping. The attitude of the Chinese government makes the journey even more dangerous. Although China's relations with North Korea have soured, China pleases North Korea by detaining any defectors it finds and returning them to almost certain harsh imprisonment and possible torture. China has forcibly deported tens of thousands of North Koreans, conservative estimate since there are no statistics available, and looks the other way when North Korean agents capture defectors inside its borders, according to the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. In total, around 30,000 North Koreans have made it to the South, 
where they are welcomed with free housing, inexpensive medical care, and training for the cutthroat job market. However, the passage has become more difficult since Mr. Kim became the North's supreme leader in 2011. Last year, 1,127 North Koreans arrived in the South, just one-third of the annual number before he came to power. China deports the North Koreans despite having signed a 1951 United Nations Convention not to return refugees to countries where they will suffer persecution. In the United States, the European Union, South Korea, and the United Nations regularly ask China to stop such repatriations of defectors whom they consider political refugees. China has paid no heed. It says it views the North Koreans not as political refugees, but as economic migrants seeking jobs. It says it sends them back because it can't afford to have its depressed northeastern region destabilized by an influx of outsiders. Miss Choi and her niece started making arrangements for the clandestine overland journey after the sisters' phone call, and they soon faced an early hitch. The group of defectors was larger than they had expected. The sister and her son, age 28, were joined by the son's girlfriend and two of his friends. Now there were five people to move through China without attracting notice. Miss Choi and her niece phoned a South Korean man whom they had hired to handle the escape. Known in the smuggling business as a broker, he had arranged the niece's journey out of the north during less tense times five years earlier. Get the driver, her niece told the man. And to calm her own nerves, the niece sent a text to her Christian pastor to read at the Friday evening service she usually attended. The congregation was mostly well-to-do South Koreans who tended to be standoffish toward the proper or the poorer North Koreans in their midst. Please pray for my family's safety, the message simply said. As the hours passed, um, Ms. Choi paced the little apartment. She thought about the call she received last spring from her sister, who lived near the Chinese border and had climbed a tree on the edge of her town to make the call without being caught. Make sure the plan goes well, her sister had said. Look after me on the journey. Most of all, Miss Choi remembered her, her sister's warning. She would kill herself rather than be sent back. Well, the group of five could hardly have picked a more precarious time to flee into China. Chinese security was on high alert, searching for North Korean defectors. China was angry at South Korea for deploying an American missile defense system known as THAAD. The Chinese saw rounding up North Korean defectors who were heading to South Korea as a way to irritate the government of the South's newly elected president, Moon Jae-in. At the same time, China's leader, Xi Jinping, was pressing an anti-corruption campaign that was making Chinese officials much less amenable to the bribes often offered by brokers to release North Koreans arrested at the border. China also appeared to have given greater access to North Korean security agents, to scour its northeast for defectors to drag home. Making it to South Korea depended on the skill and reliability of the broker.
Miss Choi and her niece had paid the broker an advance fee of $13,000, most of it earned by the sale of the niece's apartment in Seoul. They would need to pay him much more if the group reached the South safely. As the risks of defecting have risen, so have the fees charged by brokers. Sixteen years ago, when a young North Korean man named Xiao Jae-pyong walked across the border into China, he only had to pay a North Korean soldier the equivalent of $10 to look the other way. Mr. Xiao, who is now president of the Association of North Korean Defectors in Seoul, said brokers demand far more money now, even as their failure rates have also gone up. The best brokers, he said, are North Korean defectors based in Seoul who maintain contacts in the North and a roster of drivers in China. A good broker even knows how to locate and free North Koreans who are caught by the Chinese. The going rate for basic information about a detainee, name, age, date of arrest, is a gift to a Chinese official of a $1,000 Samsung smartphone or a kit of expensive South Korean cosmetics, Mr. Xiao said. Winning the release of a North Korean costs much more and in the current atmosphere may be impossible, he said. The broker hired by Miss Choi and her niece was rusty at the job and greedy. Instead of handling the sister's journey himself, he subcontracted the case to a North Korean woman in Seoul who's married to a Chinese man. Uh, the husband, in turn, hired a relative in China to pick up the group in a van after they sneaked across the border. The relative was then supposed to drive them to Shenyang, a, a city in northeastern China that's often used by North Korean defectors as a base before heading south. The Yalu River separates China and North Korea, and at Hyacian, a North Korean border town, it narrows to a skinny ribbon, and the river is low in the summer. The sisters' group waded across the water up to their calves. It was late afternoon. Once across, they got lost in the woods. For two days, they wandered along the wild eastern edge of China in hills above the town of Changbai, looking for the driver. Behind them lay certain punishment in North Korea, Ahead was the vastness of China and their own uncertain future. Every few hours, Miss Choi's nephew called her apartment in Seoul. Where's the car, he pleaded. They were cold and hungry, he said. We're ready to die, the nephew said at one point. They had, they had brought poison with them and were willing to take it, he said. Miss Choi believed her sister carried opium tucked into her clothing Opium was common in North Korea, where poppies grew all over the place, Miss Choi said. It was often used in small doses to cure colds. In larger doses, it was lethal and used in suicides. In the phone call, her sister had mentioned being beaten during three months of detention in 2015. If her sister were returned to North Korea, the punishment would be unimaginable. In Seoul, Miss Choi and her niece were frantic. We didn't eat. We didn't drink anything, she said. Finally, the North Koreans found their way out of the woods, and the driver located them at 2 a.m. on the edge of Changbai. Her nephew phoned. We're saved. We're going to live, he said. 
Photographs sent by the driver showed the five wearily huddled in a van. The sister, her heart-shaped face creased by a slight frown under bobbed hair, her nephew, 28, with a perplexed nephew on his expression on his face, I'm sorry, in a brown jacket. There was her nephew's girlfriend, about the same age as him, with long hair, slouching in the car seat as she stared into the camera. Two friends in their late twenties in dark attire. They chatted excitedly on the phone in the van as it traveled toward Shenyang, but the driver asked the women in Seoul to stop calling. Their calls could be monitored by Chinese surveillance. The last word came from the group at 10 a.m. when they were approaching their destination, and then there was silence. At first, the broker in Seoul and his subcontractor, the North Korean woman, could not explain what had happened. We're looking for them, the woman told Miss Choi in a curt voice. Soon, the woman provided an explanation. The five had been taken hostage. Such claims are a common ploy by brokers to extract more money from anxious relatives, Mr. Xiao said. Several days later, she changed her story. No, they must have been arrested and more money would be needed for their release. Carrying a wad of cash, the subcontractor jumped on a plane to Changbai, where she thought the group was being held. Miss Choi's niece was so upset she wanted to go too, but Miss Choi told her to stay. Do you want to die in China? Instead, the niece took the advice of a pastor and staged a one-person public vigil outside the Blue House, which is the presidential office in Seoul. Worried about being identified by North Korean agents, she disguised herself by piling her blonde-tinted hair on top of her head in a bun and wearing outsized sunglasses. She held a sign written in her own blood, pleading for the South Korean government to find her mother and brother. The North Korean woman who went searching for the group in China returned empty-handed. She said one Chinese official told her no amount of money would suffice to get information on the missing group. She said a second official told her that they were dead. The Chinese driver of the van was arrested and then released after a few days. He told a North Korean in Seoul who had used his services that the five were dead, but gave no further information. Miss Choi's niece turned her efforts to contacting Western embassies in Seoul for help. She met on numerous occasions with South Korea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Words seeped out from North Korea that photographs of the five had appeared on a municipal notice board in their hometown, a sign that they were dead. An informer in the town told the subcontractor that the nephew looked in the photo like he had been beaten The informer said local officials had summoned residents to an indoctrination session and warned them that they too would die if they tried to defect. Rumors circulated in the defector community that five bodies had been returned to North Korea, but there was no concrete evidence, no photographs of the bodies. The plight of North Korean defectors caught in China has been a hot-button issue in South Korea in part because North Korean nationals are treated under the South's constitution as citizens. Some who have fled have accused President Moon of ignoring China's crackdown on defectors in order to build closer ties with Beijing. 
The foreign ministry in Seoul said it had asked China about the fate of Miss Choi's sister and her four companions. Sometimes China quietly responds to such requests by releasing the defectors. More often, there is no answer. In the case of the five, China did not reply. The case was unusual, South Korean officials said. Typically, they can figure out what has happened to defectors from a variety of sources, their own intelligence agents, Chinese officials, and whatever trickles out of the North, like the reports of the posted photos. Asked about the case, China's foreign ministry in Beijing repeated its standard line that China treated fleeing North Koreans as illegal migrants, who were dealt with according to international and domestic laws, and sometimes humanitarian considerations. A senior ministry official refused to accept copies of the photographs of the missing five, or to inquire about them at the Chinese detention centers along the border. Human Rights Watch said that the, what little information it had suggested that the five had killed themselves, but uh, there was no definitive proof. The spokesman said, fear of extremely harsh interrogations and beatings experienced by returned North Korean defectors continues, said Phil Robertson, a deputy director of the group's Asia division. The likelihood they will then face years of forced labor obviously prompts such desperation that some consider suicide. Miss Choi, always neatly dressed in tastefully tailored jackets and pressed pants, berated herself for not masterminding a better escape plan. Her sister had helped her flee North Korea a decade ago. Why couldn't she successfully reciprocate? Her moods fluctuated, her face puckered with anger and grief. She fretted that her sister was either dead or being treated brutally. It weighed on her that she probably would never see her again. I did it when the broker's fee was cheap, she said, sitting on a park bench not far from her apartment in the outer suburbs of Seoul. Now I think, why did they even try to leave when it was so difficult? What does she think happened? My niece and I believe my sister and her son took their lives, suicide, she said. But it's not clear whether all five killed themselves. It's the end of that story. You, you thought it was going to end happily? No, folks. So many of them don't end happily, and we'll never hear about them in this life. And you notice the uh, importance of the Christian church in both of these stories. They're always there, helping somehow. And yet, it doesn't always work. The story was written by Jane Perlez, reporting from Beijing and Seoul, and Su Hyun Lee from from Seoul. Jane Perlez is the Beijing bureau chief. She served as bureau chief in Kenya, Poland, Austria, and so on anyway. Um, not, a, not a happy story, but then I, I don't come on here to tell you happy stories. I come here to get you to pray, and I hope that you will. Don't know if these people had anything to do with the Lord or not, but some of your brothers and sisters are trying the very same thing that they tried. Some are staying and living in horrendous conditions. I think you have enough to pray about uh, for this time. God bless you. Uh, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we will talk soon. Bye-bye.